0: Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all of you once again. That was a fantastic video. Thank you for the fantastic introduction. Uh, Pastor Mark mentioned that we have been representing fellowship for the last 34 years in Brazil, where my wife grew up. My wife is on the third row. She can stand up. Today is a really special day, not just because it's Father's Day, but it's also my wife's birthday. And I I would never embarrass her by telling you her age, but I will say she was born in 1960 (laughs) and has enjoyed many fruitful decades uh, together. And we've been 34 years in Brazil, 39 years almost. We've been married. Our ministry is focused in training leaders, over 3,000 now that have gone out from Brazil throughout the rest of the world. We also have ministered over all of these years at First Baptist Church of I have been the pastor of biblical exposition for the last 20 years, have relinquished much of that role now because our son, our oldest son, is now one of three senior pastors at the church, recently going through a pastoral transition. So he's now my boss and he preaches a lot more than, than I do church of about 1,300 members in Brazil that has a a global impact. And God's blessed us with a large family. We've actually been in family reunions the last two weeks. This photo is not updated, but we have six children, and believe it or not, 18, soon to be 19 grandchildren. I cannot believe that I am married to a grandmother. I never thought that that would, would happen to me. You have a sermon summary that you should have received when you came in, and it may be a little bit of an ironic title, I'm just a child on Father's Day. But I want to talk about that aspect, the biblical aspect of the greatest gift perhaps that we can give to our children, to our grandchildren. And as we all reflect on our own fathers, our grandparents and I think there's something for each one of us here. One of the biggest struggles we have at Father's Day is what to give to a dad. Even Mike struggled because you can't give a carnation to a dad typically on a Father's Day. And I can remember back the plaster Paris handprints that I would give to my dad, maybe a tie in the old days, maybe a gift certificate for a back massage or a shoe shine. I don't know what you did. Maybe you gave your dad his sixth weed eater for his Father's Day this year. One of the biggest struggles we have, what to give to dad. Some years ago, our kids gave to us, our grandkids and our kids, this display, which sits in our breakfast area of our family. Every morning we pray for one of our grandkids. But as I reflect, as I looked at each of the kids, and periodically they send us new pictures. And so we We trade out the old ones and put in the new ones. And wow, it looks like Tally grew six inches in the last year. Do you see how strong Jack's getting? And we note the progress and the growth and growth and independence of our children. In our own little family group, we call it Merklings, as we exchange videos of the kids taking their first solid food. The first crawl, the first time to teeter and totter and walk, the first day at school—we we mark their progress. Probably a lot of you have someplace in one of the homes you've lived that those markings on the wall or the closet. We have a paper that's all crumpled and torn and taped that shows the growth of our kids, physical growth. We measure normally in growing independence. Two weeks ago, we had the privilege as a family to have a family reunion, 28 of our kids and grandkids, sons-in-law and daughters-in-law, all together in a log cabin mansion in Colorado just outside of Winter Park. Missionaries can't usually do that, but it was given to us for a week. Can you imagine someone allowing 16 children to invade their home for a week? And we didn't break anything. It was a miracle. (laughs) But one of our kids gave as a gift to all of the cousins, all of their nieces and nephews, a Brazil shirt of the Brazilian national team, because most of them speak Portuguese, were raised in Brazil, or have those ties. Each jersey was personalized with the birth order of each one of our grandkids. A couple were missing, one is with the Lord, from 1 to 18. It was a special moment. But yet again, we had an opportunity to measure growth. I imagine in a few years, we'll look back and at that gallery of kids and grandkids, and say, wow, how much they've grown. Physical growth. We measure in increasing independence. When our kids say, I can do it myself. When our teenagers start to flex their muscles of Independence. That's a good thing. It's hard for us sometimes as parents to let go. But there's a paradox in the Christian life. It has a lot to do with our role as parents, also as children, but not just dads, but also moms and grandparents as well. Spiritual growth is marked by increasing Dependence. As we grow in Christ in the Christian life, we discover not I, but Christ. I'm just a little child. I can't do it. And sometimes in our triumphalistic culture and the name it and claim it theologies that have swept the church, we try to stick out our chest and show God that we deserve it, that we Merit whatever things we want in life, and that we can overcome, and we're more than conquerors. But sometimes we forget in Christ. John said it really well He must increase, I must decrease. I love that verse. I'd love it to be a a life theme for me, but I'd have to confess that in my life and my ministry, it's been more like Jesus must increase and I want to grow with him. (laughs) May his kingdom come and my will be done. Spiritual growth is measured in increasing dependence. Wow, we've learned that the last couple of years. The unexpected has become the norm. All of us control freaks, I have my schedule planned out almost two years in advance. Everything fell to, the, to earth. Unexpected illnesses, emergency gallbladder surgery. <laughs> And so much more. Here's the big idea that I'd like to leave with us this morning based on a passage that God has been kneading into my soul for the last several months along these lines, and I think especially appropriate on a Father's Day. So often as dads, we're expected to be everything for everyone. The great conqueror, defender, shepherd. And sometimes we're afraid to admit I'm just a child. That's a message that resounds in the scriptures. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let the little children come to me. Unless you become like a little child, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. God loves that declaration. Oh God. I'm just a child. So here's what I want you to take home this week and that God has been pounding into my soul and I've been trying to rehearse and and recite and remember and humble myself. God wants us to grow in smallness. Independence. I love a verse in Proverbs which talks about dads as well when it says in Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord starts with a little me and a big God. Not a big me and a little God. I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5 an amazing passage which I want to excavate with you this morning. We're going to do an archaeological dig in this amazing text, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. And we're going to scratch the surface and dig and brush and and try to discover artifacts, treasures that God has left here for us. But... At two points in this text, when we get to the really the heart of the text, we're going to dig shafts deeper to understand the heart of this passage. Here's what it says, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5. I'll go all the way to verse 10. It's page 955, 955 in your pew Bible, if you're using that. Starting with verse 5, it says this. Likewise, you who are younger... Be subject to the elders, both the the older ones as well as the leaders of the body. That's in the context. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. That's the theme of this text, toward one another. He started out with a vertical aspect, toward your elders. Now he talks about the horizontal aspect to one another, For God, and now he quotes the Old Testament. James, in a parallel passage, does the exact same thing. This verse must be important. He quotes Proverbs chapter 3, and he says, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the heart of this text. Now he goes on and explains, Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's still the same context, pride and humility. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. God, I pray that you would teach us by your spirit from your word That Christ would be exalted, that we would be appropriately humbled, that you would challenge each of us, but especially today, the dads, that we can't do it alone, that we're just little children, and that we need you above all. We pray by Christ's merits alone. Amen. Let's try to unearth some of the amazing truths that we get. I'm going to just list seven things here for you briefly. Twice we're going to dig deeper into this text. The first thing we discover in 1 Peter chapter 5, where the theme really is humility, childlike dependence, that submission to authority is a primal manifestation of humility. Look at verse 5 in your Bible. Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders, as you watch children respond to teachers, coaches, authority figures, it is amazing to me how I can trace the way moms and dads respond to authority by the way their kids respond to authority. The first manifestation of a humble heart is lining yourself up. That's the idea of subjection. A military idea of the rank and file. We line ourselves up under those who are in authority, both church leaders as well as those who are older. Now we all know that a characteristic of youth is I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to do it myself, and I'll take on any comers. But for all of us, this is a reminder that God works through authority structures. We as parents cannot simply (laughs) abandon our kids because they turned 18. This is an observation my wife and I have made as we come back into the North American culture. It seems like we just abandon our roles as shepherds of our own children, as guides and counselors of our kids because they turned 18. That's when they most need us. And young people, that's when you really need your parents as your best friends. Those who have invested in your life for 18 years, from 18 to 25, maybe when they most need. That parental authority and humility demands that they subject themselves. The second thing we see in this text, in verse 5, the second part, is that humility, and this is really good news for all of us, especially those who have not had the privilege of being raised in a Christian home. Humility is a Christian virtue that can be acquired and developed. It says this, Clothe yourselves... All of you with humility. And now the horizontal aspect toward one another. This sounds like the life of Christ and us in Philippians chapter 2, where he who was God in flesh served. He did not come to be served, but to serve. Now the neat thing about this is that we can put this on. It doesn't come genetically. It's just like the fear of God or the, the true biblical wisdom. You don't have to be raised in a Christian home to acquire that. It's open to anyone who will humble himself, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him or literally know him in all your ways. And he'll direct your paths. We can put on not false modesty, Not manipulation that looks like humility. It is acquired through seeking, not genetically. That's good news for all of us who haven't had that privilege. Now here's the third thing, and now we really get to the heart of this passage. Verse 5, the last part, explains The two principles we've just seen, when it says, for, and now the quotation marks, if you're using the ESV or the Pew Bible, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We covet God's grace. We covet God's favor. Oh God, pour out, open up the windows of heaven. Bless me, bless my family, bless my children, bless my grandchildren. But how do you become a candidate for God's grace? He gives two answers in the heart of this passage. First, he reminds us, the proud don't get it. Those who think they deserve it have disqualified themselves from the race. God literally lines himself against. I don't know how many of you were football linemen in high school. Imagine a five 5'10", 160-pound offensive guard. And he's been playing neighborhood ball for years. And he actually, by a lot of, of exertion, has made the varsity team. But they play little schools from little towns. And he's pretty much having his way with a lot of people until they come up against the state champions. And that 5'10, 160-pound guy looks up, and on the other side of the line is a six foot five, three hundred and ten-pound <laughs> Lyman who's gonna to go to Alabama. <laughs> now imagine yourself, little you, little me, on the line, and we look up and up and up. <laughs> and it's God. <laughs> The word here brings that description. God actively resists the proud because you are a glory thief. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, Psalm 115. God hates glory thieves. Oh, but he loves to pour out his grace on the humble. We could paraphrase by saying, "If God is against us, who can be for us?" That's terrifying. Now I want to dig a shaft here. I'd like us to dig a little bit deeper, as though we're doing this excavation and we're finding these, these incredible relics and artifacts and treasures on the surface. But the passage is actually quoting the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 3, which says God resists the proud. But as we dig this shaft deeper into our archaeological site, we discover that God resisting the proud has a long and infamous history. Think with me about King Herod. In the days of the early church, Acts chapter 12 tells how how he imprisoned James, the brother of John, one of the inner circle of Jesus. He kills James. Nothing happens. Herod goes on his merry way and he sees that it pleases the people and the priests. And so he now gets Peter and he puts him into jail. But I want you to open your Bible in Acts chapter 12 and look what happens at the end of the chapter. This is amazing. This illustrates for us as we dig deeper into the scriptures how God resists actively those who exalt themselves as though we were the strong. Acts chapter 12, verse 20. The same herd who's already killed James, the leader of the church, who's already imprisoned Peter, it says this. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. He persecuted God's church. He killed God's apostle. He placed Peter in prison. Nothing happens, but you steal God's glory, watch out. We can dig deeper into the scriptures, to the story of Nebuchadnezzar. An amazing story. Look in your Bibles at Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. God graciously warned him what was about to happen. If he did not humble himself and recognize the sovereignty of our great God, he had every opportunity, but a year passes, and his chest swells, and he thinks he's hot stuff and we read in verse twenty eight of chapter four daniel four twenty eight all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, it "Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power?" as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was filled. <sharp> <sharp> And he became an ox, like an ox. It's interesting, earlier in the chapter, verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. God places us in positions of authority, of leadership, and yes, fatherhood, the least, so that He can be the greatest. The gallery of faith in heaven is filled with the unworthy, the undeserving, because God resists the proud, all, oh, but He loves to give grace to the humble. That's the next phrase. Quoting Proverbs chapter 3. Go back in your Bibles to 1 Peter 5. Back to the surface. Here's the good news. Oh, he resists the proud who steal his glory. But he loves to pour his grace on the undeserving, on the unworthy. Who cry out, oh God, I'm just a little child. Everyone in this room qualifies. Except... Those who are full of themselves. Is not this great career that I made because of my hard work and study? Is not this scholarship that I gained because I was a great athlete? Is not this wonderful family that I have because I have done so many things right? God resists. This is the gospel, but God gives His favor, His grace. To the humble. That's what we've seen on the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus meant when he said, Unless you become like a little child, you will no, by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel. It's Jesus, not I, but Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's all about Jesus. If you've never heard the simple, pure message of the gospel, it's simply this. You and I are miserable sinners. We deserve nothing but hell. God graciously gave his only son to die on Calvary for us. Everyone who says, I can't get to heaven, I can't do enough, I'm not worthy enough, and takes that step of faith over the pit of hell into the arms of Jesus, the Bible says you are saved. Because now Jesus gets all the glory. If you've never done that, if you've never said to God, oh God, I'm just a child, I deserve nothing but death. I can't do it on my own. I can't run my family. I can't run my business. I can't keep my own heart straight, my mind, my mouth. God desires the poor grace, unmerited favor that Jesus merited. Now, I want to dig a little deeper here again, quickly. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from Proverbs chapter 3. Which says this, toward the scorners, the mockers, the proud, he is scornful. But to the humble he gives favor, grace. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Who said that, Solomon? Where did Solomon get that from his daddy? Because King Solomon when he had the opportunity, when God appears to him in a vision and says, Solomon, ask for anything. He's a newly minted king. He could ask for riches. He could ask for glory. He could ask for victory. He could ask for territory. And here's what he says. Oh, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my daddy although I am but a little child. Solomon wasn't a little child. He was a grown man. He says this, I don't know how to go out or come in. It's like a little baby, a little child. He, he's toddling and he doesn't know how to get back into the house. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this great people. God loves this. I'm just a child, God. Have mercy on me. Is that your prayer? Is that how you wake up in the day? When you face insurmountable obstacles, are you just going to triumphantly take them on in your own strength? Are you going to humble yourself and demonstrate that for your kids? Even to the point at times when you get down on your knees, look your son or grandson or granddaughter in the face and say, Daddy sinned. I'm just a child. What a great gift. Now, where did Solomon get that? If we dig a little bit deeper, we discover that that's how his dad lived. That's what David had said to Solomon. In fact, he records it just a few verses later when Solomon says this. When I, Solomon, was a son with my father, David, Tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Solomon, let your heart hold fast my words. This was their family devotions. Something we've lost in our day, we saw in the video, the shepherding role of the parents. Keep my commandments and live. Solomon, whatever you do, get wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Humility. Humility. Small me, big God, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Mouth. Do not forsake her. She will keep you. Love her. She will guard you. The beginning of wisdom, Solomon, is this get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Ah, he didn't miss the message because his dad taught him. In fact, David lived that way with all of his failures, he was a friend of God. Who prayed, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child. With its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time and forevermore. That's the prayer that God wants to answer Oh Lord, I'm just a little child. In my studies, in the workplace, in my unemployment, in my ministry, in my finances, as I lead my home, as I raise my children, in the face of temptation, in the hard decisions I need to make, and yes, in the midst of a global pandemic. God gives grace to the humble. And then he exalts the humble. In his time, when it's clear in the heavenly corridors that God's going to get all the glory, then he can risk exalting the humble. He did it with Joseph, with Moses. He did it with David. He did it with Daniel. And he's doing it with you and me. Not to us, O oh Lord. Lord. Not to us. I love what I call the 4-7 principle, which comes from 1 Corinthians 4-7 and 2 Corinthians 4-7. 1 Corinthians 4-7 asks a simple question. What do you have that you didn't first receive? And if you received it, why are you glorying as though you hadn't been given it? 2 Corinthians 4-7 is my wife's favorite passage. It says we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the glory would be his and not ours. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time when it's less of you and more of him, he may exalt you. Now here's where it gets really good. I love these last two principles as we finish. I've used verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 5 so many times in pastoral ministry. You know it but I've always taken it out of context. Look at what it says, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties, your worries on him because he cares for you. As a generic principle, that's true. But what I didn't perceive is that anxiety, worry, is actually a form of pride. That's the context. The whole passage flows. It's it's still continuing. Casting as you humble yourself, realizing you're not God. I'm not God. This God complex, which we collectively have and individually have, as though we had control over the universe, really diminishes God and exalts ourselves as though we could change our destiny. Control the opinions of others as we frenetically promote ourselves and our accomplishments on Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and everything else. Anxiety, worry, really puts us on the throne and diminishes God, it's a form of pride. And here's the last thing. This is also amazing. In this exact same context, we get this order. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here's what the passage is saying. The devil is prowling around, sniffing out pride, That's the context. Pride is like a perfume of filet mignon to the devil. It's like spraying yourself with this this meat. And because he is characterized from the beginning with pride. He's the father of pride. He wanted to put his throne above the throne of God himself. He wanted to be Jesus in the universe. When he sniffs out his own kind... (laughs) He pounces. Resist him. How? Magical formulas, the sign of the cross, declarations, evidences of pride and triumphalism? No. Humble yourselves. Humility is the anti-devil repellent He's gone. Because he hates humility. Because it exalts God. The parallel passage in James is fascinating because it says this. He gives more grace. Therefore it says, and he quotes the same passage, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The end of the passage says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. A spray a day keeps the devil away. (laughs) Of humility, genuine, not false modesty. So here's the prayer. That God most likes likes to hear. Oh God, I'm a dad, but I'm just a child. I don't understand this new world, these technologies, these, these waves that are inundating my family. Oh God, give me grace. I don't know how to be a godly husband, I don't know how to be a grandpa. I don't know how to be a leader in the church and in my home, in my business. I'm just a child. And I wonder if God, with his angels, in the breakfast area of heaven, instead of looking at a display of his children, us, and saying, Look, look how John is so much stronger and independent, he doesn't need us anymore. Oh, look how Susie just diminished six inches. Look how Mark is is just a, a little bit weaker and dependent on us. More grace, grace. Because God wants us to grow in smallness. What a gift to give children, spouse, grandchildren. Not I, but Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the unanimous message of the scriptures. Forgive us for so often exalting ourselves, showing how strong we are, flexing our independent muscles. This week, less of us more of you. May you increase. May we decrease. May you be glorified, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory. Amen. May God bless you.